Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host, and we are on to another episode. Today, our guest is Robert Cantor, and he is going to talk about a little bit about his own story of addiction with himself and his daughter and how that motivated him to become an international advocate for people who are struggling in addiction and specifically the opioid epidemic and how he has been out there to spread the word about helping these individuals who are struggling with addiction and also working to hold accountable some of the companies and individuals that helped create this opioid epidemic. Really enjoyed talking with Robert and just once again can hear his passion for his work to get the word out there to help people to help other families who are struggling and to just advocate as he does so i hope you enjoy this episode let's go ahead and start it hello everybody welcome to the addicted mind podcast my guest today is Robert Cantor, and he is going to talk about his advocacy work with the opioid epidemic and also share some of his own story of recovery in for himself and his family. Robert, please introduce yourself. Thank you, Duane. It's an honor and privilege to be here. Yes, Robert Cantor. I am an international recovery advocate addressing the opioid epidemic, and I also speak about my story of recovery from alcohol and substance use disorders, as well as my daughter's struggles and how that was the genesis of my advocacy work, and uh, which is a passion of mine right now. And as you probably know, as the CDC releases numbers, they just keep going up and up. And when I wrote my last press release, it was 88,000 overdose fatalities in this country. It was revised up to 93,000, which is a record because you have the perfect storm of the pandemic and you have fentanyl on the street, right. which is just so powerful. And these young adults, they never lived with this before and they're just 
they're just not waking up. So it really is a public health emergency. And podcasts like this, any media coverage really does save lives because people kind of know everyone and more or less is touched, as you know, by by substance use disorder. But, you know, it's, it, it always has to be top of mind because it is such a it's a really um, an epidemic within a pandemic is, is kind of what's going on right now. And just that number itself, it's just so huge. And you hear all of those, you know, I just imagine all the families impacted by those losses. Right. So we lost more people last year to overdose fatalities than we lost in the entire Vietnam War. So I'll give you a little perspective wow. of how. And in and the, and the last I don't know, seven, eight years, it's been half a million Americans. So, you know, it really is like the pandemic, a public health emergency, except it doesn't seem to be going away. That's the problem. I mean, there are a lot of great organizations and I advocate there's a lot of great individuals, congressmen, specifically Congressman Trone, a lot of great legislation, a, a lot of new pathways to recovery like medication-assisted treatment compared to 12-step programs, relatively new, you know, somewhat new. But right. the numbers are the numbers, you know, the numbers don't lie. And yeah, and, and uh, that's why this settlement uh, two weeks ago was very significant because the monies have to get out there for treatment. It's not like people are just going to stop being addicted, as you know. They, money has to be there for treatment programs, and that's how we'll reverse this. That and just trying to not get the fentanyl on the street, but that's obviously outside of the recovery community's responsibility. So let's talk a little bit about that settlement. Can you give some background about what that is so listeners know and can understand when you're talking about that? Because I think that's a really important thing. And then I want to just get into a little bit of your story about how you personally went through this and why you want to advocate. But first, just talk about this uh, settlement. Okay. So... Just reeling back to this epidemic and how it started and where it is now, when you talk about culpability, there are a number of different entities that are involved that point fingers to each other. The problem is when you have the pharmacists and the doctors and the distributors and the manufacturers like Purdue, and then the my vote for the real, real, the entity that really caused the epidemic, which is the Food and Drug Administration, because they're the gatekeepers. They're the ones that are supposed to protect the American public. And so that's a whole thing. The problem is, Dwayne, when you have all of these entities pointing the finger, basically nobody's responsible. That's the problem. Right. So this was a lawsuit brought on. So the state that was most devastated by what we call the pill dumping was West Virginia, and specifically Cabell County and a town called Huntington. And so they decided to do something. They, because the pills were dumped by the distributors, Cardinal Health, Amerisource, Bergen, and McKesson, they said, we're going to sue you under what's called a public nuisance code. So that would be like your neighbor leaving out the garbage. And, right. and so they did that. And they sued these three distributors in West Virginia. And this case is considered a landmark case because it will be the first time for significant dollars that culpability will be made, will be assigned. There are over 3,000 other lawsuits around the country. I think it's 3,300 related to the epidemic against physicians, pharmacists, distributors, and so forth. The problem is, again, so what is McKesson and Cardinal Health America, Sourceburg? And they're saying, all right, we, we ship too many pills, but we could ship a million pills. The doctors are the ones that wrote them. And, and right. so 
West Virginia was decimated, decimated by the epidemic more than any other state. I mean, and you talk about marginalized communities, some communities don't even have cell service there. And you talk about just lack of treatment. You have hospitals that are like 20, 30 minutes away and these kids are dying in the ambulance. So of course there's culpability. And, and you know, some of the things that came out of this trial, Dwayne, is, Dwayne, is like these executives at McKesson are exchanging emails calling these individuals addicted to the pills, pillbillies. And it's, it's just unbelievable the lack of compassion. They you know, knew what they were they, doing. Of course they knew they what knew. they were doing. But so their defense yeah. is, oh, no, no, okay, so we're distributors. We're like UPS. Okay, so what? Did we put, you know, it's the doctors that prescribe them. So then you have the doctors that say, no, we have pain management uh, guidelines. So we had to do, and on and on and on. But as these numbers for the CDC went up, Dwayne, there was just too much pressure on them to settle. And so two weeks ago, a settlement was announced of $26 billion that would be going to all the states for treatment programs. So the recovery community is ecstatic. However, they're also not ecstatic because it's a, when you talk about the tobacco settlement of 200 billion, this is really not a lot of money. So a certain amount right. of states have to sign on to this for this to go forward. As an advocate, I'm sitting here and I'm saying, you gotta be effing kidding me. They're dying like flies out there as it is, this money won't start to be distributed until the end of September, and it's over a period of time. How long do you want to wait and play the court game to get more money? So, you know, right. I, I'll say to an attorney general, I'll say, listen, okay, you want to hold off for more money. Great. That's great on paper. But when, you know, when, when Johnny overdoses in the coroner's office calls mom, go call their mom and see how you feel and see if your decision was correct. So I'm not saying it's an easy decision, but here's an opportunity where a settlement was made. It's a landmark settlement to appoint culpability. There's money on the table. Right. It is essential that the money go to treatment programs and social service programs, social services programs. And so that's why it's so significant. And also it's saying to McKesson, McKesson's a huge company. They're like up there with ExxonMobil. And when you see that McKesson kind of, for lack of better words, Dwayne caves in and says, okay, we're not going to admit fault, but here's, you know, $20 billion, then it's going to be so much harder for these other companies and CVS and all of them to say, no, 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 we're not going to give it. You see what I'm saying? That's why it's, right. it's, uh, it's such an, an important settlement. Where it's, it really starts to show that there's responsibility there. You, you have responsibility to behave responsibility for people's lives. They're in your hands and can't just go, oh, no, sorry about that. And here's one very important tenet of the settlement and gives you an idea of what they didn't do, Dwayne. Now, all three of these major opioid distributors will work together and share information on the amount of pills they're distributing. So it will be very easy to say if there's 200,000 people in Cabell County, why are we sending 20 million you know, oxys to Cabell County? They should have done that before. And what they did is they, they had a, the more pills they sell, the more money they make. So they had certain thresholds. They knew we, we can't sell and you know, distribute any more pills to, you know, we're just, we're being ridiculous. We're, we're adding to the epidemic. So they did their own thing. They raised the thresholds to make more money. And so did McKesson and so did Cardinal Health. And that's where you got bombarded. Now they're required to work together to share all the information 
So the red flags that should have been there are now there. And they can say, okay, you're sending out 3 million, we're sending out, that's enough. You know, that's enough. They're going to get decimated. Wow. To get back to your question, Dwayne, it's significant. Personally, I think it's wonderful and very important. I'm all about treatment. Um, As you know, in recovery, it is a complicated scenario, but it's great news. I think it's great news and it's a step in the right direction. If these other lawsuits go through quickly, now the monies for treatment around the country are really starting to open up. Right. And there's some responsibility put where it needs to be put. That, you know, you have the Sackler family, Purdue Pharma, they knew that some of the stuff was more addictive than they let on. I believe that. And there's all that responsibility. And they made so much money. It's just it's, yes, it's but, crazy. But here's what I would say. There are no angels, but I just want if there's a great 60 minutes piece on the Food and Drug Administration. They were so corrupt and they pulled the rug out under the DEA to enforce anything, to put these executives in jail. The the FDA is responsible for protecting the public. They're responsible for overseeing the marketing of the the distributors and manufacturers. They're responsible for, for analyzing the labeling. The commissioners, more times than not, of the FDA, when they leave the FDA, they go to big pharma. There was such corruption that they didn't do their job. I'm not saying Purdue was certainly culpable. I mean, these people were criminals. But the FDA, the gatekeepers, didn't stop what they were supposed to do. That, and if you listen to Andrew Kolodny, he'll he'll concur with that too. Andrew Kolodny from Brandeis, he'll say that, where was the FDA in all this? So the corruption there just opened the floodgates for all, Got it. like, like the yeah. distributors say, well, we're, we, you know, we're following the FDA guidelines. We, you know, the, really, if you think about it, the source of the epidemic, in my opinion, was the Food and Drug Administration, and they know it. They, they know until that corruption was cleaned up. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. I, I can hear that. Yeah. So. Wow, uh, a complex issue. So. Let's talk a little bit about your own recovering your daughter and how that moved you to be such a strong advocate for this issue. So I am in recovery from alcohol use disorder, substance use disorder, and I've been sober many years. I subscribe to a 12-step absence-based model, and I attend the mutual aid meetings on a regular basis. So I got sober, and about three years ago, my daughter almost overdosed on opiates and heroin. And this is where the, the, so in the past, and especially in the Jewish community, there's a tremendous amount of stigma, right? What is stigma? It's the right. absence of compassion. And we always tried, my now ex-wife, tried to punish the problem away. You're not part of the family. You're, you know, you have a moral failing. You know, we don't want anything to do with you. I learned about the Portugal model of harm reduction, which I'll describe. And we took that approach and met my daughter at a diner to have a conversation with her. Now, the Portugal model, basically, in a nutshell, is the country of Portugal 20 years ago had a very severe heroin epidemic. They took the problem out of addressing it in their criminal system. They put it in the Ministry of Health. They created a, a, what's called a dissuasion committee, which was a social worker, a physician, I think, and an attorney. And any individual caught with less than a 10-day supply of drugs was not put in jail. They were required to appear in front of the dissuasion committee with the purpose being to treat the individual as they are, which is they have an illness, give them these harm reduction tools and help them. Don't punish them, help them. 
long story short, they reduced their epidemic by 75%. So wow. knowing that, I mean, I had the, the advantage of being in recovery and understanding 12-step and all the other elements of, you know, other pathways to recovery. We sat down at this diner. Now, my daughter, mind you, had been locked in an apartment with a drug dealing boyfriend who was just killing herself. You know, she was like, time's not traceable. She just had checked out. So we convinced her to meet us at a diner. She came. She was high on heroin. We had this conversation. We love you. You are part of the family. We understand your suffering. We're not going to co-sign your BS, but we want to help you. You know, you want to go to treatment. We have your back. You want us to drive you to detox and so forth. And so she left and, you know, my wife and I were just sitting there crying and, and, and an hour later she shows up with all her belongings. She says, okay. And we drove her to detox and she went to rehab and she went to sober living. And now she just celebrated three years of sobriety. That is wonderful. Thank you. So, and this is my only child. So here I've been given the gift of sobriety. My daughter's been given the gift of sobriety and I'll try to fast forward here. I said, let me do some volunteer work to, to give back. I volunteer for a nonprofit in New York City as a parent coach. And one of the things this nonprofit does is they write drafts of legislation, which they submit to congressmen and senators, hoping that they pick it up, you know, addiction-related legislation. Sure enough, a woman who I became friendly with at this nonprofit submitted legislation to Congressman Trone, who is the leader in Congress, you know, in, in, with legislation right. related to addiction. And Senator Gillibrand on the Senate side called the Family Support Services for Addiction Act. And at that time, it was of 2020. Now it's been reintroduced. It's already passed the House. So I just went to the press conference here in Long Island just to observe. And apparently she told them all about my story. And the senator comes out. And at the beginning, she starts her speech. She starts talking about me and my daughter, Sasha. And the next thing she does is invite me at the podium to start telling my story. And I had no idea this was going to happen. Then the local media covers it. And then I start establishing relationships in Washington, particularly with Senator Gillibrand's office. And now I'm quoted in The Hill and the National Review. And now it's leading to more appearances and an NPR podcast. And then I said to myself, when you talk about the other main big advocates in the country, Tim Ryan, Ryan Hampton, Chris Heron, nobody is advocating on an international basis. They're just not. They have their books and their movies and their foundations, which are wonderful. So I I just started doing international television and talk radio Europe and Australia radio. So two weeks ago, when this trial was settled, I did an interview on TRT World and on Al Jazeera. Al Jazeera behind BBC World and CNN World is the third largest network in the world. And so it's taken on a life of its own. And then I wrote a, an article, a guest column for the head of addiction psychiatry at Will Cornell called Commitment Yields Success in 12-Step Programs. And without mentioning a specific program, I talk about the fact that this model of recovery requires a high level of weekly commitment in time and then on other levels about honesty and working with an individual. So it has taken on a life of its own. And like really growing out of that experience for yourself and your your daughter and seeing your daughter and taking on that advocate that humanitarian advocacy, that kindness, that compassion to understand that addiction is a disease and people need support and help, not punishment to get through this and and being able to like grow that and 
it, it like just came out of that experience, it sounds like. A hundred percent. So at my 12-step meetings, at least every three weeks, it's the same story. An overdose because of fentanyl. It's the same yeah. story. And I see these parents and I, so I came so close that it shook me up, like, like it traumatized. Yeah. It was that. And it was the fact that she was in this apartment with a boyfriend dealing her drugs. And as her father, I was completely powerless over doing anything. That was a big part of what pushed me into this. It's like, I don't want other families having to a situation with, with, and to have a child so disconnected from the family that who knows where they, they'll go to their family that they know, which is the family of, of drug users on the street. And, and that's right. not what we want them to be. So my trauma, they, my experience, I, I've been accomplishing my goal, Dwayne, of being able to be of service and carry this message and hopefully, hopefully save some lives because of the experience I have. So that's how I arrived here. I think that's just so wonderful because, you know, working in the field of addiction and helping people, I've just learned that people who are struggling with addiction just want support. They want help. 99% of the time, they don't want to be, I mean, you want to, but you don't want to. And with that kindness and support and without the stigma, they can get the resources they need to make those changes and really thrive. Exactly. Exactly. They say, you know, separate the illness from the individual. It's not a moral thing. Yeah. And in order to do that, we need outlets like this. You know, I, I was speaking to a producer at a TV station about appearing on this station, talking about these subjects. She said, well, you know, the, the opioid epidemic has been heavily covered, so we're not sure. And I'm sitting myself is, if you covered it twice a week, you're not covering it. It's a public yeah. health emergency. COVID-19 at five stories a day. If you want to really see, to me, for me, you need two things to happen to reverse this epidemic or three things. One is treatment, but you have to have the media on a consistent basis covering the positive things that are happening, such as the trial, such as treatment like medication assisted treatment, such as, you know, whatever is out there, sober communities, right. to let people know, to almost drill it into their head that this is bad, but here's what's doing, here's what's happening in Congress. The other thing you need that's really not going to happen is a broad-based national coalition, just like with many other movements, where we pool the resources together and we're out there. Because this is a situation where they're nonprofit agencies, there's too much competition, it's just not going to happen. But that media right. piece, and that's the kind of organization that I would ultimately start, is to make sure the media understands everything that's happening in this space, give them the content, and get the coverage just like you. Like you're being of great service right now because one listener may not be suffering from alcohol use disorder, but their brother might be, or their right. sisters, yeah. and you know, and they will say, "Hey, I heard this podcast, and I heard about this agency called or this organization." Uh, Voices and Friends of Recovery or, or, you know, Young People in Recovery, Faces and Voices of Recovery. And, you know, maybe I'll Google them and give them a call. So the media yeah. piece is huge. And that's why I appreciate so much the, the time that you're giving me, because, with, you know, we're talking about saving lives here. This is no joke. And I think, you know, like you coming on and talking about it and, and talking about it brings a human face to it. You know, I think that so much of the past of the way we've looked at people who struggle with addiction 
unfortunately, people got dismissed, got, oh, it's their fault. They chose it. It's, you know, and, and so I think as we talk about it and we show the humanity behind it, we realize that they're not just numbers, it's people, it's families, it's bigger than that. And, and, and changing that stigma around addiction, because I think it just gets dismissed so easily. And I think that's part of the problem that is in our, in our culture in general around the idea of addiction, if that makes sense. Oh, no, that's 100%. So, you know, like I said, what is stigma? It's the absence of compassion. And I'm not or we're not in the recovery community going to, you know, decriminalize drug possession, right? It's just not going to happen in this country. But again, you're punishing the problem. It's great that they have treatment programs when they're incarcerated, but they're incarcerated. The message is, you know, you're a failure. You know, you you should. The message is you don't deserve to be in society. That's not the message you want to give someone that that's sick from drugs. You know, you want to give them the message. Yeah. We understand your pain and your suffering, and we have resources for you. And we have resources for your families, right? This is family illness. The people we hurt the most are the people we love the most. And so the media allows that information to be disseminated. Right. So, yeah, and gets it out there and, and allows people to see it and get the message. And this goes back to changing the whole stance, going back to the Portugal model. And I, I have been reading, God, I can't remember where this, where they did this, but they started to open safe havens for people who were doing intravenous drugs, heroin and whatever, where they could come and they could get their drugs, they could get everything. And at first, I guess the story went is that the police officers and, and all them were totally against this, like, no way, no way. But once they did it, it became so successful. Uh, crime dropped. These people got help. They got support. They had a safe place to be that now other places were trying to get those facilities. So I hope programs like that continue to to grow and and propagate as, you know, like your message gets out there, everybody else, you know, this message gets out there, that this is the way we need to deal with people who are struggling. So here's a perfect example of what you just mentioned, Wayne. So they're called safe injection sites. And last week, actually, this is another timely story, Rhode Island was the first state to approve safe injection sites. Australia has been doing it. It's a wonderful idea. You know, it's just with medical uh, personnel standing by right there. Again, the message being these are people that are ill. These are people that are suffering and they're not ready to get treatment because of the nature of what they're suffering from. But they have an acronym, NIMB, not in my backyard. And basically, yeah, yeah, go ahead, knock yourself out. But you're not putting it in, in my town of Great Neck, Long Island, what are you nuts? The property values are going to go down. So, of course, it's always about money and politics, but it's it's such, it's like Narcan. I mean, these are the things you need. And so if someone understands the Portugal model and they're like, oh, I, I never thought of that, well, maybe these safe injection sites do make complete sense. It's like safe needles, right? Distributing safe, yeah. it's the same thing. You know, I'll just tell one quick thing and then I'll, I'll stop talking, but I live in a fairly, I'm not affluent, but I live in a uh, village in, called Great Neck, Long Island, which is an affluent area. It's right near a train station, which goes into Penn Station. So there was a guy at the Great Neck Station. He looked homeless. You know, he was in bad shape. I think he was drunk. And this woman calls up. She's like, you got to get rid of this drug addict. He's, you know, a low life. He's probably, you know, 
Like she was so wrapped up in the stigma and, and yeah. with no compassion, I was just listening to this and I said, this is the battle right here, Dwayne. This, this is where we have to educate people. And, and how about that that person maybe, how about that that is a, that guy has parents or he might have children or he might have once had a career or whatever the case is. Like where's the compassion in this versus the punishment? But that's what has been, you know, you go back to President Nixon, the mm-hmm. war on drugs. Well, guess what? The war was lost. <laughs> it was lost. Yeah, it's a utter failure. And, and, and I think it propagated this idea that, you know, as human beings, we're absolute in our willpower and uh, that we're not complex and nuanced and um, that we're supposed to be in total control at all times. And, and, and it's just not it's just not humanly possible, I don't believe. And we project that on to people who struggle with addiction. And then and it just it just makes no sense. Yeah. And one thing I can tell you is I'm the father of a child that suffered from this and I suffered from this. I mean, multiple rehabs. I will tell you the stories and multiple emergency rooms. And and so I I do come from a place of of experience. And, And as a sufferer, as a sufferer, you know, the stigma prevents many people from getting treatment. You know, it's it's yeah. also a, a big problem that, you know, it's an admission that they're sick or it's a worry that others will find out. And then you have COVID, Wayne, which is, you know, well, if COVID is rampant and, you know, and, and I, if I go to the hospital yeah. and I get sick, well, then you know, give another person from suffering from AUD and SUD another excuse. That's all they need to not go to the hospital. Right. And, and I like to believe, I don't know if this is true, I'm not, but I like to believe this stigma is slowly lifting and changing more people are are being more open about their struggle with uh, substances and their struggle with mental health issues and i think that is just so wonderful when people come out and are able to talk about it like yourself because it's one notch lower on that stigma scale like we hear other people who we admire and realize like, oh my gosh, they're human too. They they have mental health. They maybe struggle with anxiety or depression or substance use disorder. And the more we talk about it, the more we realize we're all in the same boat here. If you're a human being, you struggle and you struggle with, with stuff. I mean, it's just, you know, being alive. And uh, the more we have compassion, I think the greater that um, we're going to mitigate some of the suffering. There's another piece which is very important is when people in this country see the amount of money that Congress is allocating for treatment and to address this and the activity and, and the opioid prevention task force that, that Congressman Trone, you know, it's all bipartisan. So the money is there and the, and the awareness of the severity of the, of the problem is there in the halls of, of our government. That's very, very important. Like, I'll make a statement to you right now. It's not in any way a political statement, but a lot of people don't know that Donald Trump lost his brother to alcoholism. So when you have a personal connection like that, don't think that it's not affecting. So Congressman Trone lost his nephew to an overdose. So it's affecting them. You know, they get it. And so that's important for people to know. It's not like they're not disconnected. Nobody is shielded from this public health emergency. And you got a lot of people in Congress that have been, and and so 
One of the ironies of these 93,000 lost, Dwayne, is that the more people that lose loved ones, the more these people are then going to get involved in really understanding what happened yeah. in treatment. And, you know, that's one of the unfortunate silver linings yeah. of all this. But the legislation piece, billions of dollars, there's a bunch of different bills right now. This particular bill I mentioned, the Family Support Services for Addiction Act, passed the House. It's now in, in Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions in, in the Senate. And it should breeze through now because it, it didn't pass last year because the Congress ended. So now, and Congressman Trone is the, you know, and it's getting a lot of co-sponsors. So so we're also excited about that as well. So that's why what we're talking about right now is so important. How the hell are people going to know about everything? I'm not the expert here. I consider you the expert. <laughs> How are they going to understand everything? You know, I mean, unless unless they have a media outlet to to hear it. Right. And to get the story out there and the message out there. So, Robert, I want to thank you so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind and advocating for people out there who are struggling and advocating for this whole movement. If someone is out there, maybe someone who's struggling with addiction or a family struggling with addiction, what would be the one thing you would want to say to them? Two things. I would want them to have that loving, destigmatized conversation with their child or their brother. Before doing that, I would suggest they do as much research as possible. So first of all, I'm going to give you my email address and people are welcome to email me and I will speak to them, direct them. That's fine. So it's robert at robertcantor.org is how they can reach me or robert.cantor at opioid.press. So either of those emails, they can email me and awesome. I will, yeah, I would more than glad to direct them. They want, you know. Faces and voices of recovery, young people in recovery, there are many, and then your local, like in Long Island, Long Island Recovery Association and so forth. I'd like to see them do research first before having that conversation, because when they do have that conversation and that loved one says, whoa, they did research, they really do care, they do know about safe injection sites, that's going to be a big plus. Don't go in there and just kind of show that generation gap, go in and say, yeah, we've come down to your level. We understand what's going on out there. So do the research, look into these organizations, even if you have to call the hotlines to speak to someone to understand, as you know, the 12-step programs have hotlines you can call. What you want to do also as a family member, for example, is build a support network and talk to other parents right and support groups to understand the kinds of things that you want to talk about with your child because they have already been through it. So I would suggest the research and then that conversation emulating the Portugal model. And to me, you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. Yeah. But there, there are people out there that want to help the person who's struggling with addiction, but also want to help the family uh, there are a lot of places out there to get the help, you know, reach out for it, investigate it. I totally agree with that. Get that support. People know, you know, how to help you and as best they can and, and go forward. And also just in closing, there are obviously there's, you know, substance abuse and mental health association. There are government agencies that you can certainly look at that have resources to so between the, the nonprofits, between the government organizations, and between your local community organizations, there's plenty to research, plenty of knowledge to absorb. 
and plenty of support. There's a lot of support out there, but people just have to know where it is and to tap into yeah. it. Yeah, to tap into it and, and find it and use it. And if you feel that stigma in yourself, try and be kind to yourself and just reach out anyway. You will find caring people out there that will support you. And if someone can't, go find someone else. <laughs> if they don't, if they're caught in the stigma of it, move on, <laughs> find someone else and go forward. So thank you, Robert, so much for coming on to the Addicted Mind. I will put all of your links in the show notes at addictedmind.com. Robert, thank you for your work and your advocacy. Thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking with you, Dwayne. All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As usual, all the show notes will be at theaddictedmind.com. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with a friend or write a review. That really does help get the podcast a lot of exposure and helps people find the podcast. And don't forget, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in the Addicted Mind podcast. Click join and continue the conversation online. All right, everyone, have a wonderful rest of your day. Stay safe. And I will talk to you on the next episode. It's easy to blame ourselves for our struggles with alcohol. We see people around us being able to control their drinking without any consequences, yet no matter what we try, we can't seem to figure it out for ourselves. My name is Jillian Teets, and I am the host of the Sober Powered Podcast, where I use my biochemistry background to explain the latest research in addiction and help you understand both why you drink the way you do and how to develop the skills and mindset you need to find freedom from alcohol. I discuss topics like why we think about our drinking drinking 24-7, why we have no off switch, and why we crave alcohol. If you're struggling with your drinking or you know someone who is, then I hope that you will check out the Sober Powered Podcast. New episodes every Friday. See you there.